on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. Dealing with nerves at trial, getting good at public speaking, delivering a sound closing argument. These are the topics for the second episode of our two-part mini-series celebrating Nita's 50th anniversary year. I'm Marcy Buckmelter, and welcome to May the Record Reflect. If you tuned in to the February episode of the podcast, or have noticed the special logo on our website, then you know that 2021 marks 50 years of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. Here on the podcast, we're celebrating this year-long occasion with 50 trial tips for each of NIDA's 50 years. These tips come from our teaching faculty, program directors, authors, and members of our Board of Trustees. And as I mentioned, the first set of tips dropped in February. This episode is the unveiling of the second, so let's get started. The first question of today is, how do you deal with your nerves at trial? Or anywhere, frankly. Lots of good suggestions, with the first one coming from the Honorable Anne Claire Williams. She is retired from the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. Today, she's of counsel at Jones Day in Chicago, not to mention a board member and program director for many of our international public service programs in Africa. NIDA is actually a nonprofit organization, and yes, advocacy training programs are our claim to fame, but defending the international rule of law and improving systems of justice, no matter where in the world they happen to be, are the values that are at the heart of our mission. So the work that Judge Williams does in these international programs accomplishes exactly that. It may be hard to believe that even someone with her experience gets nervous, but she does. And here's how she deals. Three deep cleansing breaths. Three deep cleansing breaths to the count of 10 keep me grounded and calm. Counting to 10 when I inhale, counting to 10 when I exhale, before I get in front of any audience for any reason to give a speech, talk, lecture, demonstration, toast, or just to sing, I take those three deep cleansing breaths that prepare me for anything that is to come. Program Director Clay Taylor has an interesting way to quell your nerves and those of your client in his tip. Usually the nerves of trial that we have to deal with mostly involve our clients, sometimes our witnesses. My tip to uh, all lawyers is to make a trip to the courthouse in advance uh, of your trial. Bring your clients, bring your witnesses with you. Let them sit in the witness box. Let them sit at counsel table or in the jury box. That way, when they arrive at the courthouse for their first day of trial, when they're the most nervous, they will have been in the room before. Uh, and they will feel unquestionably more comfortable uh, concentrating on what they need to do uh, to deliver testimony and to prevail in their case if they've been in the room before. Just that simple tip, just that simple thing can be a great help. 
Next is Jay Leach. He is with the Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento and Anita Program Director for our annual trial skills and deposition programs in the Bay Area, both of which are being taught online right now. Here's how Jay studies his nerves. My solution has been for many years, my solution to nerves in any situation, which is that um, I take the worry off my shoulders by suggesting to myself the following. Jay, what do you think is the worst possible thing that could happen if today does not go well? In fact, if it goes as badly as it possibly could, what is the worst thing that could happen? And my answer is, well, um, I could have a heart attack and die, or probably even worse than that, I could have a stroke and be debilitated, but um, in bedridden and hopeless um, for years to come. And then I say to myself, you know, I'm really very confident that none of that's going to happen. So my day is going to go better than it might. It's going to turn out better than it than than the worst that it could possibly happen. It's going to be a good day, comparatively speaking. And then I relax. It's, I suppose, a version of Thich Nhat Hanh who said that he has a way of being happy every day. He said he's happy every day because, for example, he can say, I'm so happy today that I don't have a toothache. Elsie Wright is with the Department of Justice in Philadelphia. Here is his advice. In my view, you deal with nerves at trial by having total focus on the task at hand. What you are doing only lasts a finite period. Focus during that period. View the task at hand not as a chore, but as an opportunity to be great. Cynthia Goodworks of the Goodworks Law Firm in Maryland says you should be nervous. Here's why and what to do. I deal with nerves by embracing them as a legitimate part of the process the body goes through whenever you speak or perform in public. The late great singer Frank Sinatra, as great a singer as he was, once said that he was always nervous before any performance. As a trial lawyer, if you care about your craft, you should be nervous. It's not your money, liberty, or life that is on the line. The primary fear that comes from trial work is the fear of the unknown. What will happen if I do this? Or what will happen if I don't do that? Three things I always do is, number one, I prepare as much as I possibly can. Number two, I practice as much as I possibly can. And then finally, I pray. The Honorable Marion Gaston, who's on the bench at San Diego Superior Court, admitted that her nerves still get jangly from time to time. So how do you deal with nerves at trial? Know you're going to have them. Our nerves show up for all of us in different ways, different ways for different people. After 50 jury trials, my hands would still shake. And that's okay. Um, I realized that I couldn't hold up a piece of paper in front of a jury without the shaking being obvious. So if I had to hold up something, I would just use heavier poster board. I realized that I couldn't hold a plastic cup to drink water during a trial. So I just take a Nalgene. You're going to be nervous. That's because you care. That's okay. Lisa Hogan is a faculty member practicing at Brownstein and Hyatt of Denver. Here is her tip. When you take long, deep, and slow breaths, that actually triggers your body to stop producing cortisol and adrenaline. And instead, it starts circulating serotonin, 
which will calm you down and help you think more clearly. Also, when you smile and laugh, your body releases endorphins, which minimize pain and discomfort and help with the reduction of anxiety. And here's the thing, even a fake smile has the same effect. The facial muscles involved trigger your brain to release endorphins. So fake smile and breathe. The Honorable Mindy Solomon is a county court judge in Fort Lauderdale. That means she's both heard and delivered a lot of closings. And she says, So nerves at trial. Well, you're going to have them. So first things first, drink decaf coffee. Knowledge is power. You need to know more than anybody else when you're there. That will cut down on your nerves. It will give you control. No things are going to go wrong and just breathe. Britt Schoenberger is the star of a recent NETA webcast about picking the jury that's right for your case. Click the link in the show notes below if you want to check it out. But in the meantime, listen to this. Sometimes when I'm either sitting uh, down ready to stand up and do um, a motion or some form of argument, or I'm standing before a jury ready to do jury selection or opening statement, I get nervous. Uh, and I don't want anybody to see it, and my breathing's a little bit rapid. And so what I do is I squeeze my toes really, really hard. Um, the reason I do that is because it helps to dissipate the energy that I'm feeling and reduce uh, the adrenaline and allow me to breathe more calmly. And the great thing is that no one can see that you're doing it. Uh, so if you just practice squeezing your toes really, really hard, you'll notice uh, that you're actually using muscles uh, and helping to reduce some of that energy to allow you to thrive. Uh, so try that out. Speaking of feet, here's another suggestion for them, this time from Sarah Williams, who practices personal injury law in Alabama. The important thing to remember about nerves is that it is natural to be nervous, and it is okay to be nervous. That being nervous does not indicate that you are not prepared or not good at what you do. And sometimes you need those nerves to feed you and keep you sharp and feed your energy. Um, The way I deal with nerves in trial and during the course of trial is by remembering to breathe and to practice breathing um, while I'm on a break or while we're in the hallway or, you know, if the jury's out or taking a break to take several deep cleansing breaths. I also believe it is important before you start anything, whether it be an argument or your opening statement or a direct examination to take a deep breath and center yourself. I always tell my students to plant your feet before you start. And so that is my, um, mechanism for centering myself. I take a deep breath and I plant my feet and then I get started. I don't just walk up talking or just start talking immediately. So breathing and centering yourself is um, definitely my way and method of dealing with nerves during trial. This next contribution comes from Terry Rushton, who's played an outsized role in Nita's history as faculty member, author, and organizational leader. 
Along with John Baker and Mark Caldwell, Terry has been instrumental in helping with projects related to our 50th anniversary. And this tip is no exception. Let's listen. The nerves actually are worse before the trial because you anticipate uh, the worst that could possibly happen. As we've all learned most recently during this pandemic, the unknown is much more frightening than even a bad result in trial. People are always asking this question of the faculty, assuming that because we appear poised and confident that we don't have those terrible nerves. But Frank Rothschild, a long time ago at a class I taught with him, told the class a vignette that I've used many, many times, usually at the end of my programs. This is how I remember what he said. When asked how I, doing death penalty cases as a prosecutor in Alaska, keep from being nervous, I always laugh at the question. I am nervous. I'm terribly nervous. If you aren't nervous, you lose the edge that allows you to be sharp and quick and at the top of your skills. If you aren't nervous, you might as well phone it in. So I prepare very well. And then I throw up in the trash can right before I go into court. And then I just walk in and I do it. Because once the trial begins, you're much too busy to have nerves. And finally, trustee Whitney Unteed of Freed and Brown in Miami says, Actually, I do those kind of silly Amy Cuddy power posing exercises in the mirror before I even leave to go to the courthouse. And then once I get there, first thing, I go to a bathroom, I lock myself in a stall, and I do them again before I even walk into the courtroom. And then when I get to the courtroom, I walk in with a smile and I, I take time to say hi and to banter with the courthouse personnel and do whatever I can do to put my client at ease. And I do it not necessarily because I'm feeling happy, but to take that step and to counteract the body's release of that cortisol stress hormone that pushes the fight or flight response that manifests in only the most unhelpful ways in the courtroom. And by smiling and by interacting with folks, shaking hands and saying hi, it actually prompts the release of oxytocin, which is the happy hormone that promotes human bonding and de-stressing. And I find that if I can make those contacts with other folks, even just to say hi and how was your weekend, it de-stresses me and helps me get in the right headspace to talk to a jury and to talk to a judge and to represent my client the very best that I can. A big part of dialing down your nerves is developing public speaking skills, which is a critical skill for trial lawyers. If you can manage to get really comfortable speaking before a crowd, you're going to have one less thing, one massive less thing, to concern yourself with at trial. So let's hear how the pros do it. I'll start with someone who needs no introduction. If you've listened to the podcast before or caught a Nita webcast, you might know her by her voice alone. Professional athletes train every day. Professional musicians practice every day. The best way for you to become a better speaker inside the courtroom 
is to practice even when you're outside of the courtroom. Find opportunities to talk to donors on behalf of your favorite charity, for instance. Volunteer to give the toast at your friend's birthday party. Find speeches from great speakers you admire and practice them out loud. Record yourself. Look at your performance. Listen to your voice. Analyze what you like and what you don't. And try again. Practice builds your public speaking muscle memory, regardless of the content. In her autobiography, the actress Julie Andrews writes about this advice from her singing teacher. The amateur works until he can get it right. The professional works until he cannot go wrong. That was Carol Sowers. And like I said, she's been a Studio 71 guest on repeat this past year. As a former news anchor, she knows a lot about how to communicate with power and poise and coming across well on camera, which is ever so important in the Zoom era. Up next is Dan Deasy, a trial lawyer with Amaral Deasy in Inglewood, Colorado, who says, Number one, practice. You got to practice speaking in front of people. And what that means is you practice to friends, you practice to family, you practice in front of the mirror, you practice in the car. And that's perfectly acceptable. No one's going to think you're crazy if they see you talking to yourself in a car when you're practicing. Number two, you need reps. You need to look for opportunities to speak to groups. Groups of friends make it a little bit easier, but it may make you more nervous. Groups of people you don't know, perfect. Just look for those opportunities. And number three, and perhaps most importantly, be you. No one expects perfection. So while you practice, nobody's expecting you to never misspeak. Nobody's expecting you to not use the words ain't and um. Just get up there and be yourself because your audience will always love it when you yourself are the best you you can possibly with that, best of luck to all of you and good luck in your public speaking. John Bernard has taught for Nita for many years, and he has this tip to offer. It is said only one in a thousand is touched by the hand of God. For the rest of us, it's an acquired taste. And while there are a lot of moving parts to effective public speaking, the biggest obstacle is fear. Why? Well, by definition, you're outnumbered. In the work we do, it's often by a ratio of 12 to 1. So let's cut down those odds. Let's cut down that ratio. When you speak to a group, target one or two members of that group at a time. Look them right in the eye when you make a point. When you finish a thought or a sentence, move to another person or two. Spread it around. Include everyone if you can. It works. I don't know why, but it does. You won't feel so outnumbered. You won't feel so intimidated. You'll get more comfortable and you'll get more confident. I asked the same question of NIDA Next Generation faculty member, Nick Williams, of the Kessler and Williams Criminal Law Boutique in St. Louis. When attempting to improve your public speaking skills, my one piece of advice is do not say no to the opportunity to speak publicly. Always say yes, time and calendar permitting. Take the time to speak to grade schools, high schools, colleges, and law schools. Take the time to speak at bar association meetings. Just say yes to any and all public speaking opportunities. The people you believe to be the best public speakers most likely spent thousands of hours speaking publicly. Our next contributor, Rebecca Diaz-Bonilla, wrote the book on public speaking. 
No, literally she did. It's called Foolproof, the Art of Communication for Lawyers and Professionals. She travels the world. Well, back when one did such things, of course, training high-profile trial lawyers, business leaders, and political figures in how to become a more confident, poised, and persuasive public speaker. Her book is fabulous, so look for a link in the show notes. But now, here is her tip for becoming a better public speaker. First and foremost, you've got to know what you do well and what you need to improve. So use text and videotape yourself. Take a good hard look and give yourself a review on voice, body language, tone, and make sure that substance is perfect, concise, clear, memorable. And from there, you can start picking different techniques to work on and improve. And little by little, you'll get better and better because practice does make perfect. Sydney Kanazawa is a mediator in California who has contributed a lot of free resources on remote advocacy and mediation to NIDA, all of which are available on our website. I will include them in the show notes also, but in the meantime, here is Sid's comment. How do you get good at public speaking? I think the way that you get good at public speaking is to dictate. Uh, we write and we speak very different. And so if you want to get good at public speaking, you've got to speak, you've got to talk, and you've got to uh, do it orally. So take out your cell phone and uh, use that voice message feature on it and dictate. And as you're dictating, you'll be able to chunk your thoughts. You'll be able to feel when you should be loud or soft or fast or slow or even quiet. And then as you are making these presentations, listen to yourself and get a feel for it. And when you finally do your presentation, you'll be able to hear that music of your voice. And it's a lot easier to remember that music than to try to memorize in your head the words on a page. Program Director Mark Risk practices law in New York City. Here is his recommendation for getting good at public speaking. How can we get good at public speaking when our court opportunities in court are so limited? We have to be creative. Look for any speaking opportunities, giving professional presentations, even even serving as a moot court judge. I have asked questions at public lectures just to work on getting up on my feet, rejecting my voice, and controlling my nervousness. Don't turn down opportunities to speak in court or in any proceeding, no matter how trivial they might seem. Get some training in techniques that you can practice. I've benefited from the NIDA teaching of Brian Johnson and Marsha Hunter, how to stand, how to sound. Take a look at their videos and their books. Look for good speakers to watch, academic lectures, political speeches, even clergy giving sermons. How do they sound? How do they look? What's working and what's not working? And finally, why not say to the people you work for, hey, I want to get better at public speaking and learn to speak in public. Please keep me in mind for any opportunities that come along. Finally, I wanted to know what advice the Nita Brain Trust had to offer on how to deliver an effective closing argument. 
The first tip is from Allison Rocker. She's with the Denver DA's office and is a member of the class of 2017 Next Generation faculty. When you are delivering your closing argument, there are two vital things that you have to do right from the start. The first is to stand up and make sure every one of those jurors or that judge is looking you in the eye. Make it awkward. Stand there silently. Wait until they look up from their water bottles, from their notes, from their computers. Let them see you before you say your first word. And then when you do say your first word, have it memorized. Have the first two to three sentences of your closing memorized so that you are talking to the fact finder, whether that be a judge or a jury, to pull them in to that argument, to the story that you're about to tell. Author Brent Newton spent many years with the United States Sentencing Commission before returning to private practice a few years ago. His experience with closing arguments was actually burnished early in his career in none other than the United States Supreme Court, where he represented clients in death penalty cases in Texas. Here's what he recommends. Believe what you say. Jurors can tell when you're faking it. An advocate's genuine emotion reflected in his or her words in a closing argument adds critical credibility. Of course, this is easier said than done for some cases. In difficult cases where you may have uh, little to actually believe in, focus on an aspect of the case that you really do believe in. For instance, if you're a criminal defense attorney who represents a clearly guilty defendant, focus your passion about the constitutional presumption of innocence and the prosecutor's burden to prove each element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. John Kewen is a program director in South Bend, Indiana, which just happens to be one of the handful of former homes of NIDA over the years. Here is his tip for delivering your closing. The jury has sat patiently listening to someone else's problem. They've interrupted their lives, their work, their family, their free time. Some of them possibly have taken a hit to their paycheck. So the least we can do for them is this. Give it to them straight. This is not the time to show how clever we are. We can skip the creative metaphors and flowery language. The folks making the decision for our client needs to remember what they heard and why it matters. Uh, get them that information in as few plain English words as you can. Be sincere about it. Be straightforward and sit down. The next tip comes from Ken Saria of the Estrella Law Firm in San Juan, Puerto Rico. We know Ken from the in-person programs we've held in San Juan. In my book, the use of evidence admitted during the trial to support your argument is paramount. In using the evidence, you must show how it fits into your case and its theme. Your use of demonstrative and documentary evidence in support of your closing arguments will make a difference in persuading the jury. You are cementing your arguments with solid proof that they have already heard during the trial. This is one thing that many attorneys fail to do during their closing arguments. Good luck. Marsha Levy is a program director based in Connecticut, and anyone who's worked with her knows that she's always got a song in her heart. Love the one you with, love the one you with. In the immortal words of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, we're told to love the one you wish. And that could not apply more forcefully than to trying a case 
and particularly to closing argument. So what does it mean? No matter what you think about the case, no matter how much you believe in your client, when you are before a jury or a judge, you have to believe 100% and love the one you're with. You need to feel passionate. You need to express that passion through your tone and your pace, through your eye contact with the jury or the judge, through some kind of physical presence with your client if they're sitting there next to you, whether it's a hand on a shoulder, whether it's looking at them, whether it's standing close to them. Because if you love the one you're with, it's more likely that the jury or judge will love them too. Jim Brosnahan is a legend in the trial world, having tried over 150 civil and criminal cases to conclusion in his 50 years of practice. That is some impressive math there. He's currently senior of counsel with Morrison Forrester in San Francisco. So who better to get the last word in as we bring these 50 tips for 50 years to a close? The most important thing is show how the instructions that the court has given or will give show that you should win the case. Reasonable doubt for the criminal defense. Uh, Show how there are doubts all over the case and use the concept repeatedly. Show that each element of the cause of action or of the crime has been complied with in your case if you are a plaintiff. The same is true for any defenses that are described in the instructions. The jury will put together the law and the facts. That's what they actually do, and you must help them make the match. And with that, it's time for our signature sign-off question, where I ask our contributors to imagine life after COVID. If they could go anywhere in the world, where would they go and what would they do? And I will start with Sarah Williams. So I think I would go to Napa and I would rent a villa and I would take all of my closest friends and their families and just sit outside with a bonfire and drink good wine and have good conversations um, surrounded by great people. So that is what I miss most about being able to travel and gather, being able to be around great people. Here's Allison Rocker. I've been wanting to do a uh, rent a car in Portugal and drive through the mountains and stay at bed and breakfast near wineries. So I think that's what I would do. Next up is a wish from program director and trustee Annie Dietz. If I could go anywhere right now, honestly, I would come to Boulder to teach with all of my NIDA friends. I miss teaching live so much and can't wait until we're all back together again. Henry Brown is an award-winning program director based in New York City. Here's his wish. During our time of COVID, obviously we cannot travel. And throughout my life, I've had the privilege of traveling throughout the world and and going to a variety of places. And so on the question of if I can go any place in the world now, where would I go and what would I do? I'm more cognizant of where I've not been able to travel and the fact that we don't know when travel will be restricted. So on the question of where would I go, I would go in a place that's been high on my bucket list for quite some time. 
I have never been to Australia or any place in that part of the world. And so I would definitely go to Australia just to visit the country. And as to what I would do, um, I would do what I've done throughout my life, which is go to a big city and wander aimlessly. I don't like doing touristy things. I don't actually like having a plan. I like being able to engage in, in the community in whatever way I find it, which kind of goes back to my my thoughts about what makes people good trial lawyers, being cognizant of the world around you. I always enjoy wandering aimlessly, seeing how people live in real communities, uh, hearing snippets of conversation with people in communities, particularly communities I'm not really familiar with. And so I would go to Australia, wander aimlessly, and just experience the country and the communities in the most natural and down-to-earth way I possibly could. Judge Solomon is back to share her post-pandemic dream trip. Well, I was supposed to go to Colombia and China this year. They got canceled, so I'm shooting for Israel and Jordan in 2022. I can think of no better way to close out this podcast series than with a poetic note of hope from Ruben Gutman of Gutman, Bushner, and Brooks in Washington, D.C. Take it away, Ruben. What will I do when the quarantine ends? I will walk out of my house and greet the day. I will talk to folks less than six feet away. I will go to a theater and catch a flick, absent the fear of getting sick. I will travel the land aboard a plane, see the sights and view the terrain. I will go to get ice cream and order a cone. My social endeavors no longer limited to phone. I will see people I have not seen in ages, and that's because we will be free from our cages. And that's a wrap on our 50 tips for 50 years. We at Nita really had fun collecting them for you. And we actually got about twice as many tips as we could fit into these episodes. So rather than making you wait another 50 years until our next anniversary to hear them, we'll be including the audio files as little treats in our emails and through our social channels throughout our year of celebration. On behalf of Nita, I want to thank everyone for spending time sharing their hard-earned wisdom in these episodes. These are the very judges, practitioners, and law professors who teach at our programs and write the books we sell. I know I said this at the close of the previous episode, but it really bears repeating. If you figure that each person of this caliber has been practicing for at least a few decades, and we have over 800 active faculty members, program directors, authors, and trustees, and Miss Nita herself has been around for 50 years, There is nowhere else in the trial advocacy world that you can access the depth and the richness of our collective experience. And quite a lot of what we have to offer is absolutely free on our website. Just like this podcast and all of our webcasts, our white papers on special topics, and everything else found in the resources tab at nita.org. When you have a spare five minutes, I invite you to take a tumble down the rabbit hole and see what you can find. We'll be back next month with another episode of May the Record Reflect, where I'll be bringing you more actionable intelligence for your trial practice. Catch us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Overcast, or you can go to our website at nita.org forward slash podcasts. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita.org. 
Advocacy Enhanced, Mentorship Reimagined. Welcome to the community.